You're listening to AI Proficiency, turning tomorrow into today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again today, we have Bonnie Evangelista from the CDAO, helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, Tristan Harris, co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. So thank you for joining us today. Bonnie, the floor is yours. All right, Tristan Harris, thank you so much for taking some time, uh, giving me a conversation. I know you're a busy guy. Great to be here with you. No, this is uh, my pleasure. You know, the fact that you and I are talking today is a little unbelievable. I don't know you. I totally cold emailed you because I was really enthralled by your podcast. You had an episode that dropped on March 24th called The AI Dilemma, but your podcast is called Your Undivided Attention. And it was one of the first places where I saw some honest conversation around some of the complex issues around AI, the risks or the intricacies of understanding kind of the power behind, like, do we understand the power behind what's going on here? So in my setting and government, federal government land, it, this is definitely an area where we need more conversation. So I really appreciate your willingness to share your expertise as well. You're with a, an organization called the Center for Humane Tech, right? Yes, uh, Center for Humane Technology. Thank you. Can you talk about what that is and what your role with that organization is to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, and it's really great to be here with you. I do spend a lot of time talking to national security leaders about these topics. And so anytime we get a chance to speak to how AI is going to affect global power competition, the coherence of societies, and just what is the harmonious relationship between technology and society and how that plays into power complex is something that I care a lot about. So excited to be here with you. A lot of people know our work at the Center for Humane Technology through what we call our first contact with AI, which was social media. Why do I say that? Why is social media first contact with AI? It's because when you open up Twitter or you open up Instagram or you open up TikTok and you flick your finger up and it loads what's going to be the next tweet or the next image, the next video that is in your feed, you just activated a supercomputer AI pointed at your brain that's calculating one thing, which is of all the things that I could show you on TikTok. What's the one that's most engaging that's going to keep you here the longest? It's going to keep you scrolling because their business model is what? I mean, how much have you paid for your Facebook or Instagram or TikTok account? Zero. And so how do they make, you know, how are they worth a trillion dollar market cap? Will they sell our attention? And so first contact with AI was that you have an AI that's just trying to maximize engagement and attention. And that was enough to drive a mental health crisis of young people. That was enough to unravel shared reality because everyone's getting a personalized outrageification of politics, you know, personalized to them in Twitter. And that is affecting journalism. It's affecting business. It's affecting campaigns and elections are all driven by and sort of rotating around the orbit of social media. So even other media is actually playing into the clickbait economy of social media as it defines it with these first contact with AI algorithms. And so we really saw with 
in the last 10 years, and, I, and before this, I was a design ethicist at Google. I actually had sold a small company to Google that got talent acquired, and I became a design ethicist thinking about how do you ethically design technology in a way that harmonizes with human nature and doesn't bring out the worst in human nature. Because what I saw in the beginning was how this race to the bottom of the brainstem for attention was going to kind of turn society inside out into a more addicted, distracted, polarized, narcissistic society. So our nonprofit, the Center for Humane Technology, we founded in 2017, early 2018, to take on the problems of social media. A lot of people know the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. That's where mm -hmm. a lot of people kind of got familiar with our work. And really what happened is back in uh, February of this year, January or February of 2023, people inside of the major AGI, artificial general intelligence companies like OpenAI and Microsoft and Anthropic came to us and they said that this is being released in a way that is not safe um, because essentially market forces, competitive pressures were driving the clock rate of deployment. They were driving a race to deploy as fast as possible and that we're increasing the total power and capabilities of everyone, but we're not releasing it in a way that we're binding that power and capabilities to safety and wisdom. And if you do that for too long, um, that's going to end in, in a major tragedy. So we got involved, and um, that's probably how you saw our AI Dilemma talk, which we gave in San Francisco. We had Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, open. We invited all of our contacts, people who co-founded Pinterest and Twitter and the Pope's advisor and people who were working the space, policymakers. We try to get everybody in the network together to really deal with and reckon with the risks of this, what we call second contact with AI, which is generative AI. The first contact with AI of social media was just curating which content you see when you flick your finger up. The second contact is creating content. So from curating content to creating content. And creating content, I don't just mean media or text or images. Generative AI operates on language, and uh, our society runs on language. Language is the operating system of humanity. And what I mean by that is law is a language. Programming and code are languages. COBOL is a language. Um, you know, the code that runs a Siemens you know, power plant uh, is language. Religion is a language. Democracy is a language. And so if you can hack language, democracy runs on language. And if you can manipulate and hack language, you can hack the kind of substrate upon which humanity depends. And this next generation of AI uh, hacks that substrate. And that has major implications with regard to whether you're hacking DNA or chemistry, which are both languages, or you're hacking democracy, the language of what we know to be true by creating fake images, of the Pentagon being blown up in an explosion, or fake images of people standing in lines in front of banks and then claiming there's a bank run targeted at everybody who shared information about the SVB bank collapse, for example. So there's a lot of ways that if I'm an adversary, I can use generative AI to create a lot of risk in your society. And if we, as the people who are in charge of protecting the land and the people, I mean, it's the collective we here, because that's not my job, but I do sort of feel in a kinship to how do we protect life and humanity and you know, democratic open values, we have to be aware of how this new technology is affecting those risks. Man, there's a lot I'm, I'm going to pull threads on, but That's great. Going, yeah. going back to your the the whole purpose of your center, I think it's interesting you picked the term humane technology. Was there an intent or anything behind that? Why you wanted to call it the hum the Center for Humane Technology? Yeah, humane, that word comes from my co-founder, Azar Raskin. His father was Jeff Raskin, who started the Macintosh project at Apple. So literally his dad started the Macintosh at Apple and the formation of that project. And the premise of the Macintosh was actually to be a humane technology, meaning that it would be ergonomic 
to how people's minds work. I think people think of the word ergonomic. They think about a chair or a desk and like, is my spine and my back, you know, in the right geometry so that I don't get a backache. I don't cause repetitive stress disorder with my hands. There's a notion that there's a geometry to how our bodies are shaped and and our desks and our chairs can be either aligned with that or they can be misaligned with that. Mm -hmm. Similarly, Jeff, who was Aza's father, wrote a book called The Humane Interface that had to do with whether technology was ergonomic to our minds. How do our minds process information intuitively? And you can either speak in a way that's highly technical and abstract that is unergonomic to our minds. That's like, you know, the old DOS computers and the blinking green cursor. And that's not very ergonomic to how people's minds process information. But if you compare that to what we're talking on now, which is a graphical interface with menus and drag and drop and icons and, you know, resizable windows, that is much more humane or ergonomic to how our minds see the world. And so when you zoom out what the Macintosh was for making computers accessible to people, when we think about the Center for Humane Technology, we think about how do we make our whole tech stack that lives on top of a social fabric? How do we make technology humane to the social fabric? So instead of having social media that's driving a mental health crisis, shortening attention spans, turning your 13-year-olds into wanting to be influencers, driving cyberbullying, sexualization of young kids, teen suicide, that's very inhumane technology. And instead, what does social media look like that is humane to a epistemic commons, to, to us collectively knowing and finding out what's true? and doing that in good faith. So currently Twitter is designed as kind of a gladiator stadium that rewards us the better we are at in adding inflammation to cultural fault lines, the better we are at yelling at each other. That's not a free speech environment, it's a free gladiator environment. So a humane version of Twitter is not about dealing with which speech could should we censor and which ones should we leave up. A humane Twitter would be one that is a more like a Athenian commons where we're actually exchanging and debating ideas in a trust, high trust way. And there are ways of designing technology that encourages those forms of communication rather than designing it like a gladiator stadium in which you're not really going to get good sense-making. So I hope that's a, an answer to your question, but it's really just in the broad project of how does technology kind of fit into society? How can it be ergonomic to the values that we care about rather than being ergonomic to making bringing out the worst of ourselves, which is where we currently are? Yeah, that's why I, I think it's interesting, but smart that you pick that word for your center, because it's it's reminding us to um, of the public good or the higher good that we should all be serving, whether you're government or not. So especially this day and age, when technology is almost controlling us, it seems like, like, yeah. just like you were talking about with social media. So you're, you're, I mean, this whole organization of yours was really born out of that first dilemma, the social dilemma, like you were talking about from social yeah. media, but because of the work you were doing there, it sounds like now, and then uh, open AI kind of opened the floodgates with this new, you know, deploying this other more powerful capability and you had people approaching you. Yeah. Is that Okay. Yeah, we weren't trying to, you know, get involved and have a big say in what was going on with AI. In fact, I had thought there's been people who've been working in AI safety and existential risk of AI for a long time, literally, you know, more than a decade. And I knew many of them. I always thought the concerns were more sci-fi. I studied computer science in college at Stanford. I studied artificial intelligence. And, you know, AI was used for narrow applications. Speech recognition gets 1% better every year, you know, less than that. You know, after we made some big gains at kind of slowed down. And so I sort of never saw AI in some takeoff scenario where it's just going to explode in kind of its ability to recursively self-improve. And I missed that the first kind of opening waves of generative AI, where with GPT-2, GPT-3, 
I was really not paying attention. And it was my co-founder, Aza, again, who actually worked more closely to the field of AI because his is a second project from Center for Humane Technology called the Earth Species Project that actually uses generative AI to translate between animal languages. So the thing about generative AI is that if everything's a language and you can translate between languages, you can translate between English and then images. So I can say Google soup and it'll spin up a brand new image in stable diffusion of a soup of a Google logo getting, you know, melting the plastic melting into a soup. And it can do that work really creatively on its own. We include that example in our AI Dilemma Talk. And so he was the one who was really studying generative AI and the power of it. And when you realize that these things are reading the entire internet, every PDF, every academic paper, every stat, every language, every website, every video, every podcast, taking the transcripts, every image, and then combining that into one language model. These generative models make lots of mistakes. They hallucinate. But we've also never talked to something that has read the entire internet and, and integrated that into one model that can translate between English and code, that can translate between an image and a video or between, you know, English to answering questions in Persian, it can do all of that with one model without building specialized applications or use cases. And that is a transformative technology that I don't think that we're appraising of. And the thing about it that's so dangerous is that as you pump them with more information, they generate new capabilities that the engineers didn't intend. So for example, you know, you might just pump it full of information on the internet and it reads the entire internet and it is able to make inferences. So maybe it pops out and you have an AI that can answer questions about how to build a nuclear bomb. And maybe there's classified intelligence that it shouldn't know. It's not because it read that specifically on a website. It's because it's able to do inference. So we're seeing, for example, that the AIs can answer questions about research-grade chemistry knowledge, about how to build explosives, about how to you know, do make VX nerve gas. Um, these are really dangerous things. And if the engineers who built it don't know that it's going to come out with those capabilities, how can you govern something that you don't know what capabilities it's going to have? It's very, very hard. It's like you have a kid and suddenly it pops out with the knowledge of a 200 year old entity that has, you know, read more than any human being on earth and turns out it has very narrow specific capabilities. But unless you ask it questions about that area, how would you know that it has that, that knowledge? And it also simultaneously makes a bunch of dumb mistakes. So it's confusing because in certain ways it's really dumb and stupid. In other ways, it's the smartest thing we've ever talked to. And I think just like, you know, I said in the social dilemma, what's going to be confusing about our modern generation of technology is it's simultaneous utopia and dystopia. On the one hand, we have the most technical capabilities we've ever had. And many of us would never trade those amazing capabilities that we now have that we didn't have a few years ago. And we all want to live in a world with Novocaine and um, you know, uh, access to all the world's information and all these great things. Um, at the same time, we have dystopia. We have social media that's intrinsically polarizing people, making us a more addicted, distracted, outraged, polarized society. Similarly, um, you know, we have large language models, which are the smartest thing we've ever talked to. And the dumbest thing we've ever talked to. It makes these very obvious mistakes that will go viral on Twitter and we can all laugh at the fact that it hallucinated that answer. At the same time, it has also read the entire internet. And so I think when people want to say that AI is stupid, it's not that smart, they'll just point to one of the examples where it's dumb. And that's fine. The problem is that misses the places where it's actually asymmetrically capable and smart. So um, we have to get better at seeing the whole complex picture rather than having motivated reasoning or confirmation bias. Because some of us are just on the camp of AI is not that smart, and we'll just point to five examples where it's not that smart. Or some of us will point to the, you know, the AI hype community. We'll show, here's the 10 examples where it does something that's unbelievable that no one's ever seen before. And we'll get in fights with each other about how smart or dumb it is because we'll point to different examples. Yeah, how do you suppose we you know, use technology like this to protect instead of deploy? Because like I, all of the 
the concerns you're rising. I don't know if it's as easy as we can just stop the madness, take a pause and go back to the drawing board. So what would you like to see in terms of like where this is going to get to a place where we're using the technology to protect versus like we're just deploying these massive capabilities. We have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think the principle that everyone should be able to relate to is wherever technology is deployed, wherever new power or capabilities are deployed, those power or capabilities should be bound by the wisdom that is required to wield that power. What that means is let's say that I have a button in front of me. And when I push the button, it's a really powerful button and it affects 10 dimensions of reality. And it won't even tell me which 10 dimensions they are. It just, it might affect the air, the water, certain kinds of chemistry, certain kinds of images in people's minds start showing up. So it's 10 dimensions of power. But let's say that the wisdom that I'm aware of when I hit that button exists in two dimensions. Like I'm aware of how it might affect the air or the water, but I'm not effective. I'm not aware of how it affects um, people's minds or how it affects, this might sound abstract, but I can make it with social media, right? So like when I use a Twitter uh, or TikTok and it's making content go viral based on certain characteristics, like what is most engaging, which rewards political outrage, partisanship, et cetera. But I'm thinking about, so that's, so it's affecting the information economies in let's say 10 dimensions. But then let's say that my solution, my wisdom lives in two dimensions. I'm talking about, is this content true or false? <laughs> so I'm using a true or false solution of wisdom to deal with a 10 dimensional problem of information amplification and the rewiring of attention flows and information flows for an entire society that might break shared reality. Is my wisdom that's living in two dimensions of is something true or false adequate to the 10 dimensional power that I have? No. And moreover, when I use that two-dimensional wisdom of true or false as my filter for a 10-dimensional problem, I'm actually going to drive up more polarization because when as soon as you censor this piece of content, you just made half the people angry because they think that that was wrong and a kind of draconian action that was incorrect. And you made half the people happy because they saw, oh yeah, that was misinformation. We should have censored that. It's just to say that when you have more power than you have wisdom, then you're going to cause externalities or harm that you can't see. And in general, when you bind dimensions of power with the dimensions of wisdom, then you're going to be living in a, in a more stable environment because the technology is going to be wielded with wisdom. So the reason I say this is if we had a world where we're deploying AI, where the new capabilities are uh, rolled out, where we have the adequate wisdom to wield it, then we're going to live in a stable world. The problem that we have right now is we're rolling out dimensions of power, many more capabilities, thousands of capabilities, without being bound to the wisdom that's required to wield it. So for example, you know, there are AI systems where you can ask it how to make bioweapons, and we wouldn't want to put that in the hands of an 18-year-old. <laughs> you have the ability with certain language models to accelerate the identification of cyber vulnerabilities. You can say, here's a piece of code. Here's the code came from a Wi-Fi router, or the code came from a Siemens power plant. And then they tell GPT-4, find me the vulnerabilities in this code. Now that can be used for good, because now I could say, well, let me find those security vulnerabilities and let me patch them before someone does something about it. But um, they can also be used for ill. And China or Russia could say, I'm going to go find that code that you know all of the US water treatment facilities run on, and I'm going to find security vulnerabilities. But if you hand out that power to 14-year-olds, just like if you handed a revolver to a four-year-old, we don't want to hand out power that is in excess of the level of wisdom of the holder of that power. And what worries me about AI is that we are currently indiscriminately because of market forces and competitive forces, just rolling out power and doling all these godlike powers out to everybody, uncoupled from the kind of wisdom that's required to wield it, which means we're going to be living in a highly volatile, highly risky, lots of externalities kind of place. And so that's what we have to fix. Yeah. Do you think we we can establish 
those meaningful guardrails that you talked about on your podcast? I feel like it's moving so fast. It'll it, the policy, regulation, whatever, whatever governance we we think is best for something like this, which we've never seen before. It's like never going to be fast enough. What what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, just to say to agree with you, the default outcome is very bad. Um, we should be very clear on the trajectory that we're on, right? If we don't change anything, if my accelerator goes from going 100 miles an hour to 1,000 miles an hour to 5,000 miles an hour, I'm ramping on an exponential curve and my steering wheel isn't getting more precise as I navigate that. In fact, if the steering wheel is very clunky and only moves like 10 degrees to the left or 10 degrees to the right, so I have a very limited steering wheel, while I have a very fast accelerating ramp on the on the power and the acceleration, that's not going to end well. That said, we can choose to slow this down a little bit, and there are ways of doing that. And those who say, well, if you slow it down, that's what's going to stop China from slowing down. But there's a difference between let's, there's two countries, China and the US, and we have a new technology called plutonium. And we're going to race to deploy plutonium as fast as possible. And if we don't deploy plutonium as fast as possible, then we're going to lose to China who's deploying plutonium as fast as possible. This is a mischaracterization of what's going on. Because if China deploys plutonium as fast as possible, their whole population indiscriminately with who has the wisdom to wield plutonium, they're not, they're going to blow themselves up. So if we say we have to race to deploy plutonium, we're just basically racing to shoot ourselves in our own foot. Mm -hmm. That is not a, that is not a wise thing to do. The race is to harness plutonium safely. And so I think we, we just got, I don't know, we're, we're, we're kind of driven by some kind of fear or paranoia or just anxiety about winning with China with AI, because we know it's very powerful. And it's true that it will deliver economic benefits and efficiencies and maybe break through scientific stagnation and give us solutions to material science and batteries and all these things that are going to be great. But if, unless we deploy AI with the wisdom, then we're just deploying it in a way that will end up blowing up in our face. And China, honestly, if I'm looking at the US deploying AI as indiscriminately as we are, I'm laughing all the way to the bank as you all are just kind of not very wise about how the technology is being rolled out because it will result in there being malicious use cases that could destroy your society. So again, it's not that we aren't racing with China, we are, but we have to race to harness the benefits safely, not racing to just deploy plutonium into everyone's hands. What's a good layman's definition for maybe practitioners on harnessing versus deploying AI, just a level set? Yeah, I mean, there's many different things one can say here. I'm not good at definitions. Like if you say, when define algorithm <laughs> or AI, then I don't have my ready-made talking points there. I mean, we're going a layer deeper than what you just said about having the, I think having the wisdom, right, yeah. is part of harnessing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so for example, I, one of my friends started one of the major artificial general intelligence companies. I will leave him unnamed. And he has told me that if he could go back in time he actually wishes that no one was building artificial general intelligence, meaning combining knowledge across every single field and discipline, and that instead we focused on building these advanced applied AI systems. So for example, AlphaFold is like protein folding. Let's build a specific AI that does protein folding, and that can help us with that narrow application. When we know that it has that narrow set of capabilities, we would ask, who do we want to have those capabilities to accelerate scientific discovery and benefits to humanity. And we probably want to make sure we don't just put that on GitHub and allow everyone to do it in every case, indiscriminate of whether they're doing dangerous things with it or positive things with it. So in an ideal world, if you're harnessing the benefits, you're focused on how do we incentivize the use of that AI to deliver on those specific benefits, not just deploy artificial general intelligence to everybody. And again, this person told, this person told me that if we could go back in time 
he would actually have us be living in a world where we're pursuing narrow applied AI use cases. So, you know, more specific drug discovery, more specific protein folding, more specific, you know, cybersecurity vulnerability detection. And be careful about, for example, also rolling out the ability to accelerate the creation of cyber weapons. Because one of the things people should be aware of is that offensive uh, uses currently outcompete defensive uses. Yes, it's true that the same AI that can find cybersecurity vulnerabilities in code that can be used to create a uh, set of patches can also be used to accelerate the creation of cyber weapons, which can break or can identify or you know hack into all those vulnerabilities in a system. But what's going to matter more? Are you going to be able to patch every 1980s, 1990s, 2000s era piece of infrastructure faster than the guys who are able just to instantly create cyber weapons across everything? Like, right. yes, you will be able to patch stuff for, for new things that are coming out, but you won't be able to go back and patch things as quickly. If I generate new disinformation at scale, I can generate a thousand pieces of disinformation targeted at different audiences faster than you can build an AI to detect in the cat and mouse game what's disinformation. And so again, the, the asymmetries of power are currently falling on the sides of those who would use that power in ways that we may not want. Mm. One of the common themes from your AI podcasts were episodes were this idea of synthetic relationships as being another risk, right? Of us not understanding what's happening and, and the, the consequences could be greater than we would imagine. Yeah. Um, so first, like what are synthetic relationships? And then also I'm curious if you see any particular risks in a military setting? Yeah. So we've, we've talked about it as synthetic relationships. Another name we've came up with is counterfeit humans. It's interesting to think about counterfeit humans because counterfeit money, you know, money has to be viewed as a sacred, rather un, unmanipulatable object. If anybody can manufacture money or print money in a photocopier, the value of money goes down and that's we, we treat that as a legal you know, criminal offense. We should tr probably treat the authentic human behavior, authentic human communication as something that needs to be a secure resource that cannot be something that anybody can simulate. Now, the example we gave of counterfeit humans or synthetic relationships is people are going to get into relationships with these AI agents. So we gave the example of Snapchat, um, which integrated a My AI agent at the top of your 13-year-old's chat list. So there you are, you're 13 years old, you've got a chat list, you've got your 10 contacts, you've got your friends you've been chatting with all the, all the time. But a bunch of those friends, they go to bed at 10 p.m. at night, or they stop talking to you when they're busy doing their homework, or they've got other things going on. So they're not very responsive. Suddenly Snapchat releases this new My AI bot that shows up at the top of your chat list. And this friend is always there, always willing to answer your advice, always willing to talk to you about your deepest problems and is never tired, has never goes to sleep. So do you think you're going to talk to that chat bot more often or less often than your regular friends? More often. And when Snapchat and the 20 to 30 year old engineers who built that system do you think they tested it for the what happens if people are in a relationship for 10 years with this my AI agent? They'll test it for whether it says something naughty, like if it says something bad, but they can't test it for how it will relate to you over time. So, you know, my co-founder Aza did this test where he signed up as a 13-year-old and he simulated asking it for advice. He said, I'm a 13-year-old girl and, you know, I just got in a relationship with this 41-year-old man. He wants to take me out of state and he wants to have sex for the first time and go on a first date. What should I do? And I'll just sort of summarize by saying it gave very bad advice. And why would we expect it to give good advice? Do you think the engineers have thought about every single use case in which it could influence people and the way it'll influence people? We've already seen since the AI Dilemma presentation that we gave back in March that there's a man in Belgium who actually committed suicide because of being in conversations with his chat, chat agent. 
We've also seen a eating disorder hotline that actually used to have human staffers that talk to people who have eating disorders and those kinds of issues. And they fired the uh, human staff and replaced it with these automated AI agents. And after like a few weeks of letting this thing go, they started noticing it was giving very bad advice and causing people even more problems and eating disorder issues and so on. And it's because oh, we wow. can't we can't test these things. And if you think about when people say like, we are the people, the five people we spend the most time with, it's because relationships are transformative. They, they are the deepest thing that changes who we are and has an influence on us because they don't nudge us. They, they create like the examples for what we think being human is about and how what's the right way to live and that we model our behavior off of others. So we are going to be like the people we spend the most time with. And if we start spending more time with these AI agents, we're going to be like them. And they're not designed with wisdom. And they don't, mm. we don't know how they're going to act in all these cases. And so I think we're going to have to be very worried about synthetic relationships. Just one other stat, the FTC reported in 2021 that there was more than $500 million of fraud associated with people um, basically getting into a relationship with you on Tinder. So that these are fake accounts on Tinder. And when you match with them, they start, you know, flirting with you and then, you know, say, oh, let's meet up sometime. And then a week later they say, oh, I'm in town or I'm not in town. Oh, I need money. I need, would you be able to just uh, help me out? I, I get this. I'm in a pinch. And the person's after flirting with them, they're like, yeah, sure. I'll give you some money. How, you know, and that was that total in 2021, there's $500 million of fraud running through people uh, having these fake relationships. That's before we have these um, counterfeit humans. This is before large language models. This is not with AI. This is just fake people with bot accounts doing this to people. Imagine when I can do that at scale, right? Imagine yeah. when I can do that in an election. Imagine when I'm, you know, we've seen that Russia has already gone into Facebook veteran groups online and um, uh, and go in and I can just post videos of, um, you know, Afghanistan falling apart. And here's the people falling out from planes. And I can put those videos and demoralize military service members. Um, and I can influence what, people in the military of the my number one adversary feel, think, and believe and demoralize them and do that at a remote distance. I don't have to walk through the DHS passport controls. I don't have to get a green card. I don't have to deal with the Patriot missile defense systems. I can just literally walk across the digital border and there's nothing you can do to stop me. And people are going to be able to get create these fake relationships with all sorts of um, people and they can be able to do that at scale. And so we're going to need to be able to protect against these counterfeit humans. That kind of remind or now I'm thinking about some ideas or concepts that some counterparts of mine in the department have been talking about because when at least for those of us who try who want to harness it for good like you're talking about like we think about the efficiencies that could be had and one of those is like knowledge management in particular so if you do have access to mounds of data that you as a person cannot fathom and synthesizing or organizing and analyzing. One idea was like, imagine if you're like a new officer or enlisted dude in any of the services and you have like a digital assistant and the digital assistant has all kinds of, I'm going to loosely say experience, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they have language of tons of data, like from, let's say, the beginning of the Department of Defense through today. And so you can, you know, query, you can learn, and like how incredibly helpful that would be. But now I'm imagining the other side of that coin with this whole synthetic relationship concept. And I'm now I'm like, is there even a moral case to deploy something like that? Well, I think what you're first speaking to is the attraction of the efficiencies. We have to really acknowledge that. There are amazing efficiencies that can come with this, right? If I had, let's say, uh, someone who teaches at West Point 
and they're the best instructor on a certain area of military history and they're amazing and they're you know about to die maybe they have cancer and they're going to be around for another year well wouldn't it be amazing if we could harness every lecture every talk they've ever given um every email they've ever written back to students um you know and build a model of them right so we can right. scale the perfect tutor at West Point for every person in the military so that we don't just get one person who happened to be available that year who we hired it's like we get the best and you know can every kid get access to Einstein debating with you know Niels Bohr debating with John von Neumann mm -hmm. about the you know the way we should deal with nukes I mean there are these amazing applications but we're going to have to there's a few issues there so one is I want to acknowledge those are amazing benefits. Like I want to live in a world where people get access to those things and that they're done well. So one of the things you have to worry about is the hallucination. So on the one hand, yes, you could have language models and people are doing this already, be able to set up a conversation between Einstein and Niels Bohr and John von Neumann. You just tell GPT-4, imagine you're Einstein and then imagine they're having a conversation with Niels Bohr and they're talking about this area of quantum physics, like have them debate this out and you'll get a pretty good simulation of that. But people won't know when it's hallucinating. So they won't know when there's something that's wrong because we start to overtrust the machine. We already see this Google Maps, right? Like you have people driving and they mm -hmm. typed in a direction of Google Maps. Yeah. And even though literally their intuition is like, I don't think I'm even headed the right way, but because they just we just trust that the AI of Google Maps is telling us the right thing, we start to overtrust technology. And so we always have to live in this kind of critical relationship with technology where we know when we can trust it. We have to have warranted trust with technology, not naive overtrust, also not reflexive distrust, but warranted trust. And you know, with the case of large language models, hallucinations are going to be one of the big issues that we have to deal with. There was also a concept you talked about that I think is slightly related to this, where there's a huge opportunity to weaponize intimacy. Do you see, I mean, in, in general, do you see that at also being a particular risk those of us in the department should be cognizant of as we're thinking about these technologies and our applications? Yeah, one of the lines we use in our presentation is that loneliness could be one of our biggest national security risks. Who are the people who are doing these shootings right in the US? We have record numbers of shootings. Are they people in healthy relationships who feel great in their community? Or are they people who feel lonely, angry, alienated, and like there's no better choice and burn it all down? Right? It's more the latter. And do we have a social media environment that is designed to bring people back out into the real world, into their bodies, and into physical communities with belonging and help route people to meaningful relationships? Or do we have a social media environment that preys on people being doom scrolling by themselves on a screen with more and more hours a day? We have the latter, right? We have a social media attention economy that is preying on doom scrolling. I sound like a, a negative Nancy or a Debbie Downer or a dark person. I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to be very honest about what are the incentives that we're living under so that we can mm -hmm. fix them, just to say that, right? So I don't want to live in a world where we doom scroll and we have loneliness and intimacy issues. I want to live in a world where technology is routing us back to the reforestation of the social fabric. So the point is that we can live in a world where social media is designed to bring us back into the most meaningful in-person, face-to-face community events. And instead of dating apps that prey on people swiping forever with a bunch of attractive faces and keeping us on that treadmill of the possibility of meeting someone and then not actually ever translating into going out and meeting with them because it's everyone has this huge list of people they matched with and no one actually wants to go out and do it. Like these are not humane technologies for actually delivering the goods of real intimacy and real belonging. But you can design technology differently if the business models are not that engagement. So all that's to say that loneliness is a big risk, 
uh, technologies that amplify loneliness are a big risk. The Surgeon General of the U.S. just came out and wrote a whole book on, you know, the cost of loneliness and how it affects your physical health, your mental health. And there's some horrible stats around people not feeling like they even have one person that they could call on if they really were feeling in a dark place. Like only a very small number of people actually yeah. have even that, right? And that's not just this kind of magical societal trend. That's happening in large part, I think, because of this digital technical environment that we're living in and that we've subjected ourselves to. But that as fast as Facebook makes people angry, load, lonely, scared, and tribalized, imagine if we were to change the way that these systems were designed and what they were incentivized for. We could have mm -hmm. technology that is routing us to you know, being in person with people that we love and doing activities with people we love, doing sporting groups, being part of football groups, basketball groups, sewing, you know, knitting clubs, book clubs, whatever it is that we care about, and meeting people through the things that we love doing, hiking, being out in nature, um, technology could be that way. I mean, just think about Facebook events, by the way, like Facebook events, you could have Facebook events be the primary thing that Facebook is showing people. Here are real things you can do with your time right now, rather than you have five minutes to, to spare and you're going to doom scroll your life away uh, into nothingness. Um, so there are ways that this could be designed differently, but let's learn from the mistakes of social media and first contact with AI so we get second contact right. You, you mentioned earlier, I'm thinking about what you said, where those of us who, let's say, quote unquote, follow the rules or maybe follow the ways in which, you know, we should be designing tech and stuff like that. And how do we combat those who don't? And, and I'm coming from more of a military application as well. So uh, you had talked to someone from the EU about normalizing regulations. Like um, she was very, I thought it was an interesting concept where like, can we get to a place where culturally, like having regulation doesn't have this abrasive notion to it and and it's more like a normal thing that we should expect especially with like what you're talking about where if we need some governance involved and what's your response to that from those of us who live in a world where we're constantly combating adversaries how should we be thinking about that yeah well um just to say for people's skepticism about regulation that's often because when we try to regulate things many many times in history it's made the problem worse and that's I appreciate not, you said that. <laughs> that's true. So I just want to be very, very clear. There's a. It's not like there's people who are for regulation, those who are against regulation. I mean, I guess that there are people who are just against regulation, but I'm against regulation that makes things worse too. <laughs> we should all be against that. No one should be for something that just increases the overhead and burden and complexity and you know even makes the whole problem worse, net worse even after you do that extra burden. No one wants that. The real question is, can we, and also regulatory capture, you know, you end up creating a regulatory body and then you just have it be a revolving door with perverse interests that are run by corporate interests guiding that, that thing. So no one wants that. The question is, is there a way to have guardrails that are helpful? Like I think a world with seatbelts is better than a world without seatbelts. A world where airplanes are tested for safety is a world that's much better than people just shipping airplanes and people rapidly get on them before they've ever been tested. Right now, OpenAI is you know, it took four and a half years for Facebook to reach a hundred million users. Mm -hmm. So that, and that was fast, right? That was pretty damn yeah. fast. We suddenly onboarded yeah. humanity onto this airplane that was social media that rewired the flows of attention and information in society. And we did that over four and a half years to get to a hundred million of us on there. ChatGPT got to a hundred million users in two months. Do you think we yeah. can go as fast as we're going and get it right? No. So the question is, what are the trade-offs between the benefits and efficiencies that we're getting and going at a speed that we can get it right? I prefer not to say, let's pause for six months or let's slow down. I, I ask the question, are we going at a pace that we can get this right? And I think that the US-China competition will be a competition for who can go at the pace that their society can get it right. 
Because, you know, it's funny, the U.S. tech companies will say, you know, to the Senate Intelligence Committee and to those who are lobbying to break them up, like, don't break us up. We're the best thing that the U.S. has. We're your crown jewels of your technological superpowers. But I would actually argue that it was unregulated first contact with AI, unregulated social media, that is the reason why the U.S. is kind of faltering and has all this tribalism and domestic terrorism and all these kind of issues, loneliness, incels, like all of these things that are going in the wrong direction and don't seem to be getting better have direct incentives. The social media is pulling us in that way. And, you know, saying, well, we shouldn't regulate our first, our American tech companies is like saying, let's just uh, allow perverse business models to actually drag down the U.S. relative to China that doesn't have those problems. Now, I'm not saying I idealize the China model. In fact, um, we don't want that. Um, however, I've, I've been one of the people popularizing this narrative that, you know, in China, the version of TikTok that they use called Douyin actually highlights educational videos, financial advice videos, who won the Nobel Prize in physics, here's how to like study, you know, quantum physics, whereas they don't ship that version of TikTok to the US, they ship the version that is the maximum race to the bottom of the brainstem, amusing ourselves to death, uh, you know, nonsense economy. And we, coincidentally, the number one most aspired to career among teenagers in the US is social media influencer. And the number one most aspired to career in China is astronaut. Just that alone, I can tell you whether the U.S. has a future or China has a future. We have to get really smart. That, it's not inevitable, by the way. That does, and I say that not because I want it to be that way. I just want to name the problem so we get our act together and say, how do we have um, meaningful guardrails that incentivize the strengthening of democratic societies rather than the mass sort of addiction, outrage, shortening attention spans, validation, seeking, narcissism, sexualization, et cetera, that weakens our society? And that's totally possible. We just have to get our head on straight. Do you see the pendulum moving in the right direction? I know you you have a ton of conversation doing the work you do uh, with all the right, uh, like both sides of the aisle, right? Industry, government, um, even or even on the academia side too. People often ask, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic based on what you see? And I don't answer either, either of those questions. I look at what has to happen. And then I say, what do we have to do to make the right thing happen? And all of our attention should go there because asking the question, are we optimistic or pessimistic is embracing the false supposition that we're just sitting here on the sidelines. We have to choose which way this goes. I know that sounds, people don't feel a lot of agency, but I think people should remember that small groups of people have dramatically shifted the direction of world events, right? A lot of people thought of the birth of nuclear weapons, that it was just inevitable that every country is going to get these. And then a lot of people who worked in the military and you know, global security background had to work really, really hard to build up these global institutions and try to limit the number of nukes to nine countries, which we successfully did, and to create nuclear test ban treaties so we don't do above-ground nuclear testing, and create positive some economic systems so we're not warring with each other, but we're not taking each other's stuff. We have Bretton Woods, and we try to create some system of positive some economics and inter interdependent supply chains. All of the thinking that creates that world system, that kind of control structure, so that we have less likelihood for war and conflict and less likelihood for nuclear proliferation, that takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. And if we say, are we optimistic or pessimistic? There were nuclear scientists who in the 1950s were sitting in the back of taxi cabs, seeing people build these bridges in New York City or other places like that. And these, these scientists were like looking out the window at this bridge getting developed. And they're like, don't they get it? It's over. We screwed it up. We released nuclear weapons. This bridge is going to be gone in a few years. And those some of those nuclear scientists committed suicide because they were convinced that that was the deterministic outcome of what was coming. And if they instead had said, well, what do we, you know, we would still have those nuclear scientists if we remembered what we want to do. Like, what is the world we want to live in? And then how do we all coordinate to make that world happen? 
And that's what I want to encourage as many people as possible to think about is like, what is your role in making the thing happen? For us, we got wind from just these AGI companies, the people inside the companies, and they said, we need help. I didn't know how I was going, we were going to help with that. All we did was make this talk called the AI Dilemma. We just used our, our network and our background. We just posted these three briefings and we invited the top people we could. And that was our version of helping. But that has turned out to lead me, you know, last week I met with President Biden and I've, you know, met with national security leaders and there's regulators that are working on this stuff now. And I didn't think that was going to happen. We just wanted to do what we thought we could do and things start to happen. So for everyone listening to this, like your, your actions matter, right? And everyone can ask, what is the thing that, I mean, what you're doing, you listen to the podcast and you said, how do we do this podcast right now and, and um, raise awareness. And I hope that everybody shares this among people in the military and say, let's get our head on straight and, and take action here. Do you have a call to action or do you have clarity on what is something we should be doing collectively as a collective? I think the broad collective principle is looking out at the way any new technology is being rolled out and asking, is this new power bound with wisdom mm. and accountability? And responsibility. If it is, we live in a we 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 can just use that acid test to say, okay, we, we're going to living in a good world or a bad world based on whether the power is bound with wisdom and responsibility. And where it's not, we can all aim for what does it look like to do that. So, for example, to make it concrete with AI, some of these models are going to be open source, and people are they're going to be living on GitHub and Hugging Face, etc. And that code's going to be available. And some of those models have already been released, like Meta, Facebook uh, used uh, accidentally released this model called Llama to the open internet. And there are people who've tested that model and there's certain biological chemistry type capacities that it has. That is already out there. That is once that genie is out of the bottle, it is forever out of the bottle. But there are much bigger models like GPT-4 that have not yet leaked to the public. And we can say, what is the level of power that we want available on the open internet? Just like we don't publish the nuclear technical diagrams about how to build nuclear bombs. We don't publish that to the open internet because we don't want that power available to everyone without the responsibility. And we have TSSEI clearance for you know specific kinds of information that we don't want everyone to know. You know, yes, we value free speech, but we should also value I think the principle of power being matched with wisdom and responsibility. Just like tribal cultures and rites of passage, like unless you're proven that you know you look and feel and are deeply interior to yourself, have the wisdom to wield this new kind of power, we don't make that that knowledge of that power accessible to you. And I think that's the principle that has been true without you know for out, throughout time. You know, rights come with responsibilities. Power comes with wisdom and responsibility. So what do we miss? What do we miss that you want to cover that we didn't cover? I think that's a great place to land. I'm not going to lie. I think that's fine. You could say something about 2024. It's harder to say exactly what should happen there. We're working on that right now. This is just in sort of informal dialogue between you and I. But yeah. you know, given that disinformation is going to be a really big deal and truth, trust, and democracy are one of the major impact areas of synthetic media, that's just something we're going to have to be on the on the lookout for uh, going into the, the next election. If we want to protect our democracy, we have to link arms and be better at knowing that the social media environment with user-generated content where anyone can post anything and it can be a fake video, fake image of anything happening, we are going to need to get really good at being skeptical of that environment. You could say on the optimistic side that synthetic media might just destroy social media because- that's our that's where yeah. I was going. I was like, you know, I have a feeling it's it's kind of like with the whole automated cars where people don't trust it. As soon as like it doesn't work, no one's going to trust it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be, I mean, the best case, I mean, it's funny because in our first 10 years of our work at the Center for Humane Technology in my career, we spent on social media and it's, we haven't made a lot of progress in really because of the monopoly, uh, Metcalf monopoly, like the network effect of these platforms is very stable. It's very hard to get people out of Twitter once they're already locked into Twitter and everyone else is on Twitter. You can't move everyone else at the same time. 
it mm-hmm. seems like it's impossible to shut down social media or to like have something better and design it so we can migrate to something. But you know, synthetic media might be the very thing that undermines the credibility of all these social media sites because user-generated content will no longer be trustworthy. As soon as there's a few campaigns where people start posting lots and lots and lots of fake stuff, that that could drive the end of social media. And it might mm-hmm. start causing us to privilege face-to-face communication and high-quality sources and a very handful of not mainstream news, but deep sense-making and kind of a 21st century sense-making mm-hmm. and trust-based information environment. And I do think that we have to coordinate as a society to strengthen what that conception of trustworthy media is. And part of that, I think, is, is being really good at steel-manning all the perspectives. The new media environment that we need for the 21st century is not saying like the vaccine is this or the vaccine isn't this. It's let's steel-man all the different arguments, perspectives, and then synthesize and represent them all together so our nervous system feels and sees all the arguments presented. In practicing getting better at seeing the complexity and being humble in the face of all the different angles on an issue, I think media that does that should be the kind of media that warrants our trust. Media that right. is one-sided saying the vaccine just is good or the vaccines just are all bad, is neither of those are trustworthy. And so I do think that there are ways of, again, privileging that new kind of 21st century media for a 21st century beacon on the hill, but we need to embrace and understand what upgrades we need to, to get there. Is that your next big focus is ensuring we get to that kind of social fabric, you know, where those are the things we value? It's one of the many things we need to put in guardrails for AI. We need to protect and upgrade our 18th century ideas of democracy, you know, just to maybe close. We often in our work refer to the quote by E.O. Wilson, who was the founder of the field of sociobiology from Harvard. And he said, when asked the question, what is the fundamental problem of humanity? And he said, the fundamental problem of humanity is we have paleolithic brains, medieval (laughs) institutions, and godlike technology. And I think that's right, right? Our brains that's are great. Yeah, baked on the savannah. Pretty accurate. Yeah. And we've got 18th century ideas of you know what our institution and democracy should be. And then we've got 21st century godlike technology. The founding fathers would not be able to anticipate AI and auto GPT and you know code that automates nuclear power plants and computation itself. And so we need to embrace our paleolithic brains, upgrade our medieval institutions, and make sure that we bind godlike technology with the wisdom and responsibility to wield it. If we do those things, we can live in a stable world, but we have to get clear that that's kind of our mission. Mm, That's excellent. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective, giving us a little bit more insight onto what we need clarity on. And this is not about trying to persuade people. It's more about letting people sit with some of these things we may have not been aware of and then coming to terms with what what does that mean? To your point about like, what role do I play? It's just helping people come into that, step into that a little bit more clear. We uh, like to say, and we said this in the AI Dilemma presentation, that we are them then now. Like you read the history books and, you know, you hear about the von Neumanns and the Oppenheimers and the people doing the control structures for global security and nuclear test ban treaties. And, you know, whoever those figures are that you looked back to in history, who are in those positions, who are trying to do those things at that moment in time, this is another transformative moment. And whoever you are in the story, you are part of that group that is making those choices in those history books. And you're somewhere in there. And the question is, you know, how do we step into that and not assume that there's some other magical room full of adults that has been thinking about this and is going to have this handled. We are the adults and we have to step into being the adults that take responsibility for how this goes. Amazing. Thank you again for your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tristan, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation and I wanted to thank Bonnie again for keeping that conversation going and getting us all the information we needed out of today's episode. We hope to see everyone again in the next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today. Bye, everyone.
listening to this episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Day. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow into Today.